this whole year, just about since February, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, I really believe God had spoken to me early this year and said it is the message for the church today, for this church today. And we have uh, gone through this. We went through the background of it. We spent the last few months really talking about that we are our parts, we are part of his body and that each of us have a different part that we make up and that we are to play. And we've kind of came down a few weeks ago to begin to talk about how it says in Ephesians 4, 15, and 16 that every part, in order for the body to do what it needs to do, every part must take its place and perform its function and recognize that you, and I, you are one of those parts. So the body of Christ will not function properly unless you take your part. But we came a few weeks ago to see what this has been all about. It's interesting because... The message on that day was entitled, What's It All About? And I referred to a, uh, an old song back in the 60s when Anita and I were dating called, What's It All About, Alfie? Well, there's some people second service that went out to the West Coast this week, and they went to Fred Price's church last Sunday, and the title of his message was, What's It All About, Alfie? <laughs> now, that's got to be the Spirit of God, because I hadn't thought of that song in years. <clears throat> I believe God sang something in, in the... In the, the message that day in which we've been looking at over the last few weeks is the end of that verse 16 says that the purpose of the body coming together and functioning is the building up of itself, the edifying of itself in love. We talked about why is it not faith? Is faith not important? Well, faith is obviously important. We've been talking about that on Wednesday nights for some time. Faith is important. Without faith, you cannot please God. We're saved by faith. We receive everything God gives us through faith. So faith is obviously important. But the Scripture says here that the focus of the body is the building of itself up in love. How come it's not hope? How come it's not, how come it's not uh, 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 holiness or righteousness? Does that mean we're not supposed to be holy or right? Obviously, we're supposed to be holy and righteous. But the one thing the Spirit of God said, above all things that the body is to be building itself up in, is love. And we saw why, because we spent that first Sunday, we went back and we looked in 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and then verse 16, where it gives us the key because it says in both of those verses, God is love. We misread that so many times because we read the words, but in our mind we think, yeah, what it means is God loves a lot. But that's not what it says. It does not say God loves a lot. He does. But you miss the point if you miss this key ingredient. God is love. And the reason that's so important and the reason that the body is to build itself up in love is because He is love and we are here to communicate Him. And you cannot communicate Him no matter how many good deeds you do unless you do it out of love. That's what 1 Corinthians 1 through 3 is about. It says, as I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but I do not have love. To God it counts as nothing. It may impress the whole church. We talked about doing good deeds, but if they're not what God's called you to do, in His eyes, they're worthless. They may not be worthless in other people's eyes. They may be wonderful deeds, but to God's purposes, they're worthless. In the same way, when we do, when we do good things, wonderful spiritual things, but they're not motivated by the love of God, in God's eyes, they count as nothing. Why? Because they do not communicate him. 
And then last week we began to talk about, well, all right, if we are to do everything out of love, if the motive of our heart if our, is to be out of love, what is love? Well, we all know what love is. Well, do we? I mentioned to you last week in Greek, there are, there are more than that, but there are five primary words for love. In English, those primary words are translated by one word, love. But that word has a number of different meanings to it. You know, I love ice cream, and I love my wife. I better not get the two types of love confused. (laughs) There are some people that have confused it because they love their dog, and they love their wife, and they may love their dog more than they love their wife. So we need to understand what this love is. Now turn with me to John 13, because Jesus helps us with this. He gives us a practical, this is not a theological definition, those are nice, but this is a practical definition that you can take home, and you can live out that definition, and you can know whether you're living it out or not living it out. John 13, Jesus is talking to his disciples, verse 34, a new commandment, notice it's not a suggestion, it's a commandment. Notice it's not, I encourage you to do this. It's a commandment. I had a situation a year or so ago where there was a dispute between some people, and I just sat them down, and I read this to them. I said, let me ask you a question. What about this don't you understand? Because if it's a commandment, then my only alternative is to obey it or disobey it. Well, pastor, it's hard to love that person. I didn't ask you whether it's hard or not. He didn't talk about what's hard here. He says it's a commandment. Now, in 1 John, he says, my commandment's not grievous. I mean, it doesn't mean it's not fun, (laughs) but you can do it. And what is that commandment? That you love one another. Oh, I love my brothers. I love my sisters. I know because when we come into church, we hug each other, tell you I love you, and you tell me you love me. We love one another. Of course, we don't sit next to each other. I mean, there's a lot of empty blue chairs out there, but we won't go there. I mean, we like our space, don't we? I love you as long as there's a chair between us. (laughs) I'll hug you in the foyer. I'll hug you when pastor says greet each other, but I, I I like the space there. Because I love you. I wonder if Jesus would sit down next to us. Well, we're going to talk about that. So we love each other, but he goes on to tell us what he means by that. This is my commandment that you love one another. Yeah, well, we love each other, Lord. Yeah, I know. That's great. But here he goes. As I have loved you, you also love one another. And by this you will know, why this all will know, that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now the word love that's chosen here is the word agape. And you know, if you've been in Christian bookstores and been around a while, we've heard the word agape, we know it's God's type of love. But back then that word was not used very often. If you go back and study the Greek writings of that age, it was hardly used at all. So what happened is the Spirit of God took a word that existed and filled in the definition. 
and he didn't fill it in by writing it in, in an lexicon or a dictionary. He filled it in and, and defined it by a man's life walking it out. And that's why Jesus said, I want you to understand what this type of love is like. Look at me. And look at what I have done in relationship with you. And then we went on and looked, before we're going to look at that love, we wanted to go back and look what it's not. Because, you know, if I were talking to you, and I'm not qualified to do it, but I were going to talk to you about nuclear fission, most of us wouldn't have to unlearn something because we have no clue what it is anyway. So we start with a blank slate. But when you talk to people and teach people about something that they've got an idea of, often you have to erase what they understand about it in order to start over. Otherwise, they hear what you're saying through their own understanding of it. So we spent time last week going back and looking what this love is not. And we went back and we looked in Ezekiel 28. And we looked in Isaiah 14. And we saw this angelic creature that God had created named Lucifer. And we saw that he was called by God the anointed cherub that covered or surrounded the throne of God. We saw that he was in all likelihood in charge of worship because it talked about his instruments that he had. talked about his marvelous beauty. And we talked about how Ezekiel went through and tried to describe this beauty. And then we went and looked and saw in Isaiah 14 what happened to him. He began to look at himself. Because we talked last week about the, what the root of sin is. And the open door to sin is the moment I take my eyes off of God and I put my eyes on myself. And we saw that that's what this Lucifer did. And he began to take his eyes off of God, which was his function and his purpose. And he began to look at the beauty of the creation that God had made in him and forgot that God made him and became lifted up in his own beauty. And he became impressed with himself. And the moment he did that, he began to think that he was entitled to some things on his own. We spent time and talked about why that's so important to understand that. Because this was not just an historical study we went through. Because when we finished our discussion, we saw that ever since he was cast out of heaven because of his pride, because he came to the place we saw in Isaiah 14 where there were about five or six things where he said, I will make myself like the Most High. I will lift my throne up. All these things he declared that he was going to do for himself. Why would he say those things in the face of God? Because he was convinced he was entitled to it because of his own beauty because of what he was like. And how did he become convinced of what he was like? Because he took his eyes off of God and began to look at himself. And therefore, there was a rebellion in heaven that lasted as long as a lightning bolt. God cast him out of heaven down to the earth. And we looked in Genesis 3, and we saw that what he began to do as soon as God made another creation is he began to recruit converts to his way of thinking. Also mentioned to you that his ambition that I read in Isaiah 14, is his ambition was not to take over the throne of God, but was to make himself like the Most High God. I believe his ambition was to take the place of the second person of the Godhead, the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was his ambition. And that's been his competition since. That's why Satan hates 
the body of Christ because it represents what he wants, the position he wants in heaven. We saw in the first day of our study back in, in, um, in Ephesians chapter 3 that this is all part of acting out a, a trial that's being displayed in front of the principalities and powers because it says God is proving out his manifold wisdom to principalities and powers. We saw in Romans 12 too that the reason it's important for us to be changed and transformed by the renewing of our mind is because when we do this, we prove what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Who do we prove it to? These same angelic beings. And what is God proving? He's not proving how powerful he is. He doesn't need to prove it to them. They've seen his power. Is he proving how holy he is? He doesn't need to prove that to them. They see his holiness. What he's proving to them is what his love will do. And the proof of it is what his love will do was when he takes somebody like you and me, rebellious sinners who, who only wanted to live our own lives for ourselves, and he takes a life like yours and mine, and he changes it and transforms it. Not only changes and transforms it, but he qualifies us to become his own sons and daughters. And he wants to prove what that kind of love will do. And you and I are the evidence that he's presenting to the principalities and powers of what his love will do. But we saw in Genesis 3 that Satan comes to convince you and me to do the same thing he did, which is what? Take our eyes off of God and begin to get our eyes on ourselves. And the moment we get our eyes on ourselves, we start thinking about what we're entitled to, my rights, my privileges, what I'm not getting. And so that if you should happen to cross my path in such a way that it does not, it does not build up what I think I'm entitled to do, I get offended at you. We'll pick up here now. Turn with me to, to James chapter James chapter 4. I didn't include this last week, but I want to I make our transition based on this. This will explain to you this scripture. Excuse me, James chapter 3, verse 13. He who is wise and understanding among you, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Now, meekness is the opposite of what we've been talking about. I've got to take a moment to explain this. Meekness, M-E-E, is not, meekness is not the same as weakness. Meekness does not mean weakness any more than gentleness means weak. Years ago, there was a television show called Gentle Ben. Anybody remember that show? You remember what Ben was? He was a bear. He was a big black bear. He wasn't weak, but he was gentle. Because gentleness is restrained strength. Meekness is restrained authority. Meekness is when I have the authority but I purposely decide not to exercise it for your benefit. Meekness is when I don't use the authority to build myself up, but I use the authority that I have to build you up. That's meekness. So notice he talks about the meekness of wisdom. So God's wisdom has a meekness to it. 
But if you have bitter, look verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking, some translations say selfish ambition. That's what Lucifer had. If you have, if you have uh, bitter envy, envy is when you want what somebody else has, which means you're not content with what you have. And self-seeking or selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom, what wisdom? The bitter envy or the way Satan thinks. That's what we're talking about. His wisdom. does not descend from above, verse 15, but it's earthly, sensual, and this is what I want you to see, and demonic. Envy, jealousy, and strife are all rooted in what I don't have that I think I'm entitled to. And that's the key. Because when you think you're entitled to it, it blinds you to what's right. That's what happens in strife. I'm not going to forgive him because what he did was wrong. I know it says to forgive, but I can't let go of it because it was wrong. In other words, I'm entitled to feel this way. Notice Jesus didn't say anything in his commandment about being right. You understand you're not commanded to be right? I don't mean right before God. I mean right in what happens. You're commanded to act right but you're not commanded to be right in a dispute. Because we're going to see in a few minutes, if the issue is being right, guess who's always right? Notice here that envy and jealousy and strife and self-seeking is a doctrine, some translations say, of demons. So when I yield to envy and I yield to selfish ambition, which is, bless God, I'm going to get my rights here. Well, it doesn't bless God. It is a doctrine that has come from demons. Why? Because who are demons? They serve their Lord who was the fallen Lucifer who did the same thing. They're recruiting you and me, to think like they do. Why? Because you're part of the body of Christ, and if they can get part of the body of Christ to operate on their principles, then they're beginning to fulfill their master's purpose, which is to try to take his spot. You and I are being used. You and I are either furthering the kingdom of God or we're furthering the kingdom of Satan. And we need to understand his principles. Now, the root of what he's trying to do really boils down to two things. First of all, he was trying to promote himself. So the root of all sin comes down to this, trying to promote yourself and trying to protect yourself. Does that mean we're supposed to be run over? No, we're going to talk about that. But I want you to see those two main principles. All right. That's essentially what we went through last week. We began, we didn't talk about James chapter 3. Now we're going to talk about God. Because we've now talked about what love isn't, but that's not what Jesus did when he said, love one another as I have loved you. Well, what did he do? Well, let's go to Philippians chapter 2. While you're turning there, I'll quote to you the scripture we ended up with last week, which is John 3.16. 
which is for God so what? For God so loved. So means a comparison. I love the little words. What did I tell you? Philippians? Philippians chapter 2. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. The word so means he's going he's to show you the degree to which he did it. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? So that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So God made an exchange. He took his own son's life, and he exchanged his own son's life for the world. Now that's important, because we tend to think that God gave Jesus' life for the church. The church didn't exist. He gave his son's life for a world that hated him. A world that was rebellious. And actually the term world there refers more to people. It refers to a system, a way of thinking. And what is that way of thinking? It's the one we've been studying. It's the one that was birthed in Ezekiel 30, 28 and Isaiah 14. It was birthed in the heart of Lucifer when he got lifted up in who he was and decided he had his own rights because the world system is based on protecting and asserting your own rights. Because you're entitled to it. We live in a nation that was birthed, and I'm not saying it was wrong, was birthed in rebellion because we didn't get our rights. I'm not saying the revolution was wrong, but understand the spirit that was involved in it, as long as you keep it to certain purposes, but it got tra- gets easily transferred over. And as I've shared with you, part of my concern for the church today in the United States especially, is so much of my teaching I hear is about my rights and what I'm entitled to. I hear very little messages on the radio about service. Paul did not refer to himself very often as the blessed of the Lord, although he was blessed. But he referred to himself as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he saw himself. Galatians 2.20 says, For I have been crucified with Christ. You don't hear many messages on that. I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, because I've been crucified with Him, I no longer live. In other words, my rights don't exist anymore. You're Christians out there saying, I'm trying to find my identity. No, we're called to lose our identity. If you're born again, He's your identity. I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live. My rights don't live. But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the gospel. I'm not against the blessings. The blessings are in the Bible. But the purpose of the blessing, the purpose of Christ dying was not to fill your pockets and your garage. He'll do that, but that's not why he died. That's a side benefit. 
Because if he just wanted to bless you in that way, here's what he would have done. The moment you got saved, he would have taken you out of here. Why? Because your garage is not going to look any better. Whatever blessings God can give you here are nothing compared to what's there. If he wanted you so saturated with material blessings and that was the purpose why Christ died for you, he would have taken you out because he's got much better things there. Does God want to provide things for you? Yeah, of course He does. But the priority is not that. The problem is the more we look at things, the bigger they get in our mind. The more we look at what I'm entitled to and my blessings, the more that gets in and we begin to do what Satan did. Or Lucifer. We begin to think I'm entitled to things. And so we begin to talk to God as if we're not getting something we're entitled to. And then we get bitter. And Satan's working in the midst of the body of Christ. His plan. He's recruiting. See, he doesn't stop just because you get saved. He'll continue to recruit. And Jesus' solution to this is simply to obey his commandment. And so God so loved the world, people that were in rebellion against him, including you and me, that he gave his only begotten son in essence, so that if we would believe in him, he would make us his sons and daughters. He took a people like you and me who were in rebellion against him. And he gave his own son's life, not just to wash away your sins, that's, that's what it took to qualify you, but his goal was to convert you into his sons and his daughters and to join you to his son. Yeah, when I got saved, I just thought it kept me from going to hell. And that's good enough. (laughs) But God's goal wasn't just to keep me out of hell. God's goal was literally to convert me into his son and to convert you into his son or daughter. Now turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Oh, all right, I told you to do that. All right, now look at this. Verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. That's the opposite of what we just read in James chapter 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Nothing wrong with ambition. It's selfish ambition. Or conceit, which is being lifted up in who you are. But in lowliness of mind, let each one of you esteem others as better than yourselves. Now, the word esteem means I make a choice of how I'm going to think of you. It's not an emotion. It's a choice I make of how I'm going to look at you. This one verse will solve almost all marriage problems. No selfish ambition and esteem others. Choose as an act of your will. How many of you have a will? I don't mean, you know, when you're going to die. I mean, you have the right, the power to decide what you're going to do. If you're breathing, you have a will. 
You have the power that God has given to you to make choices. That's one way in which he created us in his image. The power to choose. And that's tremendously freeing. But along with it goes the responsibility. That's why Jesus can say, this is what I command you to do, to love one another. Why? It would be unfair to command you to do something you couldn't do. Therefore, if he's commanded me to do this, I can do it. And the reason so many people struggle is they think it's an emotion. Well, I don't feel that way towards that person. But he didn't say anything about how you feel. He told us what we were to do. And it begins, notice how it begins. It begins with how you see your neighbor, how you see your wife, how you see your children, how you see your boss, how you see people you don't even know. Esteem, that's choosing to value them in your own mind. You have to say, but you don't know what they're like, but we're going to look at them of how God looks at them. How did God esteem you? Esteem them as more important, as having greater value. Esteem others better than yourselves. In other words, choose to think of them as more important than yourself. And it is a choice you make. Every day you're choosing to esteem or value. That's another word for it. Value things. You make choices with your time every day. Where you're going to spend your 24 hours, what you're going to spend it on. You make choices with your finances well, I don't, I don't have any disposable income. It'll all go into the mortgage company. Well, that was a choice you made. You chose to borrow the money. Your choices indicate what you value. And you choose what you value. Esteem others as more valuable than yourself. Well, that's hard to do, Pastor. I know it is, but it's what we're commanded to do. Look at verse 4. Let each one of you, that means there's no exception, look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And this is what I want you to get to, because this is who we're talking about. Let this mind be also in you. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying this. Think the way Jesus thinks. Years ago, not that many years ago, this phrase was popular. You'd see it on lanyards and things. What would Jesus do? I can tell you what Jesus would do. We're going to see what Jesus would do because we're going to see what he did. In Colossians, I think it says, and this was a very popular phrase for a while, you know, I have the mind of Christ. And it was, it was used in a context, which I'm sure it applies, but this is the mind of Christ that Paul is talking about. He's, when he says, I have the mind of Christ, he's not talking about the ability to think the way Christ thought, not his mental capacity. He's talking about the attitude, the way Christ thought, 
what he valued, what he esteemed. And that's what he's saying here in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you which also is in Christ Jesus. And here's what it is. This is the living definition of love. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery, the New King James says, to be equal with God. Other translations said, did not regard it as something to be held on to. So being in the form of God, in other words, he was the second, you understand this. Some of you are new here, so you may not understand this. So I'll give you just a a quick little side lesson here. You understand that, that Jesus is not his first name and Christ his last name. I have a first and last name. It's John Pfeffer. Jesus is not his first name and Christ his last name. Christ is the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one. It refers to that person that we talked about last week that was the second person of the Godhead. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. That's the Greek word logos, which means the full expression. So you had the Creator God, the Father, and you had with Him the full expression of Him, the Son. That's before he ever came to this earth. When he came to this earth, conceived in the womb of Mary and was born, he was given, God now living in a body, was given the name Jesus or Jesus. That refers to the God who took on flesh, which is John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And here's the point. Before he took on flesh in Mary's womb and was born in Bethlehem, he was the second person of the Godhead. Now let's think for a moment about what that meant. I mean, we really can't imagine. But let's try to imagine for a moment what that must have been like. You talk about rights and privileges. In fact, it says in a number of places in the Bible that all things were created through him. John chapter 1, it talks about the irony that, that Israel was created through him. He came, came among those that were all that was created through him and they recognized him. Now, they didn't recognize the one that had created them. And he didn't run around and stomp his foot and say, don't you know who I am? Don't you realize who I am? You read through the Gospels, I challenge you to find how many times he argued and presented himself as the Son of God. Now, there's some places where he acknowledged that he was, but almost always he referred to himself as the Son of Man. He came to be identified with us, but just think about what he left in terms of rights and privileges. Do you understand that this universe, God was the initiator but the, the one that carried it out was this one we're talking about, the second person of the Godhead. He reigned alongside of his Father in unspeakable glory and beauty, absolute power, majesty, with angels worshiping him at his every beck and call. And what we're going to see is he didn't regard that 
his rights, his privileges as something to be held on to. We're talking about what his love's like, and we're getting down to the root of it. We're going to talk about how we act, but the root of it is me first. Selfishness is me first. I'm protecting myself. I'm asserting my rights. We're seeing that the mind of God doesn't think in those terms. The mind of God doesn't think in terms of his rights and what he's entitled to. Because if he did, we're over. We're finished. We're toast. He did not regard his equality with God something to be held on to. But the next verse actually says in the Greek, but he emptied himself. It says in the New King James, he humbled himself. Listen, he emptied himself. No one took it away from him. It was an act of his will. He took his privileges, he took his rights as the second person of the Godhead and he took them off and laid them down. And then it goes on to say he humbled himself even more and took on human flesh. I can't begin to imagine what a step down that had to be. From being the second person of the Godhead to taking on human... See, you and I are used to human flesh. That's all we've ever known. But we have some kind of an understanding because you don't look the same way today that you did when you were born. You can do some things now you couldn't do then. You can drive a car now. You couldn't do that then. You could eat yourself, feed yourself. You couldn't do that then. You can walk by yourself. You couldn't do that then. You know, you can decide what you want to do when you're, you know, a week old. You can't decide what you want to do other than cry. You can make people know that you're not getting what you want, but you can't make it happen. But now you can make it happen. So, so you've, you've, you've grown in some privileges. But he came not as a 30-year-old man, but he allowed himself to be conceived in a teenager's womb. He didn't take any shortcuts of what you and I go through. He was conceived in her womb. He grew in her womb until the right period of time, and then he was born the same way you and I were. He had to be nursed and taken care of and fed and changed. The Son of God took off his royal robes, and I don't want to offend anybody, and put on diapers. You know, as like my only uh, immediate relative above me is my mother, and she'll be 87 in February, and she's gone through some difficult times lately. And you know, you watch people having to do things for her, and us having to do things for her that you used to do that she used to do for me when I was a child. I don't need to go into more detail with that. And you see them begin to need help in ways they didn't need it, and this was a strong, powerful, dynamic woman. And you see her now having to be taken care of and having to be, you know, go through some of the same things that she did for me when I was a baby. And it's hard to see that. It's like her dignity. You want to preserve the dignity? But Jesus didn't come in dignity. He left 
He didn't regard what he was entitled to, to be held on to and say, this is my right. But Lucifer wanted what he had and thought he was entitled to it. And so because he thought he was entitled to it, he rebelled against the true authority in heaven. Jesus, who had that authority and had those rights, decided to let go of them and put you and me above his own interest. He chose. It was a choice. I'll never forget when I heard this principle before. It changed my life. Love, this kind of love, is a decision. It's not an emotion. It doesn't matter when I get up in the morning whether I feel love for my wife or don't feel love for my wife. I can choose to love her. In fact, I've learned I must make that choice every day. Not because I don't, but I must make the choice to live it out. This kind of love. The emotional, yeah, that's there. But this kind of love is above the emotional. This is a choice to esteem her as more important than myself. Is she in the eyes of God? No, because we're all the same in the eyes of God. But he said, if I esteem her more, is what I'm commanded to do. He did not regard equality with God, something to be held on to, but he emptied himself. He laid aside his privileges and his rights and all that he was entitled to. And he laid them aside and humbled himself and took on human flesh as a baby. As a baby. Well, it goes on because he didn't just go that far to humble himself. Verse 8. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. What that means is this. Not only did he come and agree to die, but he agreed to die a specific type of death, which was the crucifixion on a cross. And the reason that's emphasized here is, and I don't want to spend the time, nor do I want to horrify you, because there were many different ways of executing. The Jewish way of execution was stoning to death. And although that hurts for a few minutes, it's merciful in some ways. But the Roman method, and the Romans had several methods of execution, but the one reserved for, for, for capital crimes or treason, the war, highest type of crime, the one, that's why the Jews accused Jesus of treason in front of, Christ, in front of the Pilate. That was a type of execution known as crucifixion was invented by the Phoenicians. And it was horrible and cruel. And I don't want to go into it, but death on a cross under crucifixion happened by asphyxiation, your lungs filled with water. Because you spent time nailed this way and your feet nailed this way in such a way that you had to, as you were hung by your nails and your wrists, basically, your arm, your muscles up here gave out because you can only hold that way. So your feet would push up to relieve them, and then the pain from the nails in your feet would shoot up through your body, and you'd go back to so in constant process of back and forth like this in agony until you passed out and came true. It was not uncommon for it to take three days for a man to die. 
That's why, because, of the, because the Passover was coming, they came and broke the legs of the other thieves because they could no longer push up anymore and they would die quickly because basically from pneumonia, their lungs would fill with water, with their own fluids. And it was significant when they punctured Jesus' side to show that he was already dead because he didn't die through the natural process. He died because he gave up his spirit, it says. He released, even the death was something he did voluntarily. He released his spirit when the price was paid. Why did he do that? Why would he leave what he had and was entitled to and humble himself and take on flesh and be born of a woman. Not into royalty, but in a little manger, a hole cut in a rock. And then grow up and suffer humiliation. Nobody understood who he was. Even his own disciples got confused. They didn't understand. I mean, one moment Peter's saying, yes, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. The next moment he's telling him, you know, don't go, don't go, don't go die. Why would he do that? Paul makes it very clear here. Because he esteemed you more highly than what he was entitled to, than his rights and his privileges. How could he stand there and allow the Roman soldiers to beat him in the face, spit on him, pluck the hair out of his beard, stick a crown of thorns on him, and mock him as claiming he was a king when their very life was a result of what he did and he was enduring this humiliation for their salvation. The ultimate proof of it is hanging on that cross in that unbearable agony. He looks down at them and he looks up at his father, says these words, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand that I've got to do this and I'm doing it for their soul so that they can join you and me in heaven. Have this same mind in you, which also is in Christ Jesus. And we get all out of whack because somebody pulls in front of us getting out on the highway. I found myself yesterday, I don't remember quite remember the situation exactly, but I was driving somewhere, and so, oh, I know where it was. I was driving somewhere trying to merge somebody, and somebody didn't give me the right of way. And the first thought of me is, is that I was a right of way. That I had the right to be there first. And I want to get up, so that I had to remember. <laughs> I had to remember, I blessed them. Bless them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. (laughs) Let's go to Romans chapter 5. Show you some examples of this. 
Have the same mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Romans chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 5. And this verse can be applied in a number of different ways. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God, this is the same word, agape, of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit or through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This means on one hand that God's ability to love is in us already. But it also means, I think what he's talking about more here is God's love for you. The hope, the reason we have hope or confident expectation of what's going to happen to us is God's proof of His love has already been given to us because He's put His own Spirit inside of us. But look what He goes on to say. This is what His love was like. This is what He did for you. Verse 6. For while when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. See, we kind of get this attitude, well, he died for the church. There was no church. We were all ungodly. We were all his enemies, the scripture says in Romans chapter 8. Well, it goes on and says something similar here. Verse 7, For scarcely for a righteous man will someone die in his place. Yet perhaps for a good one, some might even dare to die. Verse 8, but God demonstrated, proved His own love towards us. Notice it's not just theory with God. Notice God didn't just say, I love you. Be blessed. God didn't just say, I love you. From heaven, just speak down and say, Louis, I love you. Bonnie, I love you. Bobby, I love you. Love you. Oh, I love you, man. Boy, do I love you. I'd love to tell you the warm feeling I have in my heart. I love you. I love you. But it says he demonstrated. He proved. He acted out his love. He demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when he emptied himself out of his privileges and his rights, and when he humbled himself and took on flesh, as we've just gone through, he did it because he esteemed or valued you as more important than what he was entitled to and his rights. And he didn't just do that in his heart. He acted it out by submitting himself to the Jewish authorities, first of all. In some ways, he submitted himself to his own staff and just had to put up with them. Understand this, he knew he had a traitor on his staff submitted himself to the people, submitted himself to the Jewish authorities when they stand before him and they accuse him, and, uh, they accuse him of being blasphemous when he claimed he was God's son. And he was. Could he have proven it then? He sure could have. But what would he have proven? I used to wonder as a child, why didn't you come off the cross? Why didn't you do something? Why didn't you prove who you were then? 
because that's not why he was here. He wasn't here to prove who he was. He was here to die. He was here to esteem me as more important than himself. At the right time, he demonstrated himself, his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, we kind of use that term loosely, rebellious, self-centered. Romans, uh, Romans 8 says, uh, yeah, his, his enemies. We were hostile to God. His enemies. He let go of his privileges and his rights and came to this earth and was humiliated suffered terribly for his enemies. Because remember we saw earlier, for God so loved the world, the worst blasphemer out there today, he esteemed as more important than himself. The worst sinner that's ever lived, the one who's offended him more than anybody else, he died and esteemed him or her as more important than himself. We're talking about a living definition because Jesus said, as I have loved you. And how has he loved us? He did not regard his rights or his privileges or who he was as something to be held on to, but he emptied himself. Let's look at uh, 1 John chapter 3. Verse 16, by this we know love, or what love is like, because that's what we're talking about, the definition of this love. By this we know love, or what love is like, because he laid down his life for us. Because he laid down his life for us. Because he laid down his life for us. Matthew 20. Famous story here, but you'll have a different insight into it now. This is a story verse starting in verse 20 of a son. I'll have to summarize it for you. story where two of his disciples, James and John, their, their mother one day comes to Jesus. Mom. She's thinking ahead. And she says, Lord, I just have one request. When you get into heaven and my sons join you there, it's not a big one. I just like one of them to sit on the left and one to sit on the right. Now, she never got into who was going to sit in which position because the right-hand position was more exalted than the left. But she said, I just want you to, you know, when you get to heaven, when they get, I want them to sit on my left and my right. And she turns, he turns to, Jesus is so gracious, he turns to his disciples and he says, he says to James and John, he says, well, let me ask you a question. If you're going to sit there, are you willing to drink of the cup that I'm about to drink of? In other words, go through what I'm about to go through. And of course, they have no clue. They say, yes, we are, yeah, oh, sure. And it's interesting because Jesus' answer says, and you will. And they had no idea what it was. But then he goes on to give this answer. He says, but it's not mine to give. 
It's only my father's to give that privilege. And then he goes on into this teaching about what the kingdom of God is like. And that's what I want to look at here. This is the attitude of God. This is the attitude of the kingdom of God. Because Look at verse 24. You forget there were ten other disciples. When they heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Why? They wanted to be in that spot. Now here is on his own staff. We're talking about selfish. What, what was their attitude of their heart? I want to be first. I know you're first, Jesus, but I want to be next. I want to, I want to be right there next to you. I want, to be, I want to be more important than the rest of these. See, that's what I think Jesus was talking about at the end of John when he talked to Peter and says, do you still say you love me more than these? Some people say it was the fish. Some people will say it was this. You know, I think what he's saying is, do you still think you love me more than the other disciples love me? Because Peter thought he was it. And the word Jesus uses there is agape. Do you still think you agape me, this type of love, more than these disciples? And Peter, Because Peter's now found out where he was. He had a reality check because he even couldn't even go through that night without denying him three times. And he says, no, Lord, Lord, I phileo you, which is a brotherly type of love. He recognized that he wasn't where he thought he was. And so the, the, two, the other ten disciples are all mad and upset. Why? Because they esteeming themselves. See, here's a battle of self-esteem among his own staff. I'm not getting what I think I'm entitled to. Doesn't that sound familiar if we went back and looked in, in Isaiah 14? Because of me, I'm entitled to be in this position. See, it's, it's throughout all of our thinking. It's what the world system is based on and trains us in. That's why we're to renew our mind. And what are we to renew our mind to? Have this same mind in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus goes on to say this, and then we'll have to end. Verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. In other words, they exercise their authority and their position. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever does... This is how the kingdom of God thinks. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. I've heard this described as the upside-down kingdom. Now, the world is upside-down. What's right-side-up is to have this mind in you, which also is in Christ Jesus. So you have a choice of how you're going to live your life. Because there's only two systems out there. You can live your life esteeming your rights and who you are and what you want and what somebody does to you and what you're dead about, whatever it is, more important than others. But understand, that's a doctrine of demons. And you are submitting to, yielding to, and cooperating with Lucifer, who is now Satan. Or you can choose to live your life based on the system of the kingdom of God, which is have this mind in you, which also is in Christ Jesus. Who, will, who did not regard his priv- privileges and rights, which were true and were real, 
as something to be held on to, but he emptied himself as an act of his will because he chose to esteem you and me as more important than himself. Next week, we're going to begin to learn how do we apply this in our lives because what we're going to learn is when we walk in his love, we walk in a level of life that's above everyday ordinary life. And in that level of life, things and people don't look the same to you as they do when you're down in this normal, natural level of life that most of us live in all the time. We've had little glimpses every once in a while where we call them mountaintop experiences where we smell what that's like. But what we are called to do is to walk in it and live in it and be swept up in it because it is the life of God because God is love.